Chapter 9 of the Autobiography of George Dewey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 On the James River. After eighteen months of service on seagoing ships navigating a river, it was a pleasure to be back in a seagoing ship's natural element, and I thoroughly enjoyed our cruise across the Gulf of Mexico with our sails spread. Captain Emmons, who had his nickname, as every officer of the Navy had, was known as Pop. He would never get my name right, always calling me Mr. Dewar. We stopped in at Port Royal, and I recall, as we entered the harbor, that I was standing between him and the pilot when we sighted a vessel coming out. Starboard the helm, said the pilot. Port the helm, said Captain Emmons. Steady, I said. Captain Emmons turned on me. What do you mean, Mr. Dewar, by countermanding my orders? he demanded. Well, sir, the pilot said starboard, and you said port, so I wanted to avoid having the helmsman try to do both at once, I responded. Steady, then, returned the captain. It transpired that this compromise in authority saved us from any danger of collision. The prospect of taking part in Dahlgren's operations against Charleston was not altogether inviting to the officers of the Brooklyn. Farragut had fought his campaign on the lower Mississippi with wooden ships of the antebellum type and small gunboats. There were some ironclads on the upper Mississippi, but those built for use in harbors where they must stand some seaway were all on the Atlantic coast. It was out of the question to add armor to the wooden ships, as they had not the buoyancy to carry it. At Charleston, the Confederates had their most powerful batteries. If the Brooklyn engaged them, it would be pitting wooden sides and smooth-bore guns against the latest type of rifled gun. In fact, ours would be the only fighting ship in Dahlgren's command that was not armored. Upon our arrival at Charleston, while Captain Emmons went on board Dahlgren's flagship to report, we had time to look over his vessels and to realize how suicidal it would be for us to join in any attack on the defenses of the harbor. We had an example in the monitors, which we saw for the first time, of how rapidly both the offensive and defensive features of men of war had improved under the impulse of war conditions. Besides a division of monitors with their revolving turrets, modeled on that first experiment which had driven the Confederate Merrimack, Virginia, to cover, there was also the new Ironsides, that followed conventional ship construction and had armored sides. The combination of the two principles, an armored ship with revolving turrets, forms the principle of the battleship of today. Having been executive officer of one ship that had been lost, I did not care to repeat the experience. We were all pleased when Captain Emmons came off to report that it was not the Brooklyn that Dahlgren wanted, but Captain Emmons to serve on his staff. So the Brooklyn proceeded to the New York Navy Yard to be overhauled before returning to Farragut's command in the Gulf, where she was to participate in the Battle of Mobile Bay. Meanwhile, I had my first holiday from duty since the war had begun, which I spent at my home in Vermont. Captain James Alden succeeded Captain Emmons in command of the Brooklyn, and he wanted me to go with him as executive officer. So did Farragut. 
but strong objections on account of my youth were made to the navy department on behalf of officers who were my seniors and held less important assignments as i was now nearer the influence of washington than when i was directly under farragut and his great personal prestige the objections prevailed and in one sense fortunately for me it will be recalled that it was the brooklyn that led the wooden ships in past the forts at mobile following the monitors when the monitor tecumseh was sunk by a torpedo and captain alden saw torpedoes ahead of the brooklyn he stopped his ship throwing the column out of formation farragut with his famous call of damn the torpedoes go ahead signaled to proceed and steamed past the brooklyn in the hartford taking the lead away from her my next ship was hardly of the importance of the mississippi the monongahela or the brooklyn i was to put the agawam a third-rate wooden side-wheel steamer into commission at portsmouth my friends explained to me that i had been given this task in organization and discipline because i had made a reputation as an executive officer equal to any emergency however that may be there can be no doubt that both the crew of the agawam and the nature of the vessel and of the service expected of her gave me quite enough to do from the moment that i reported on board her in november eighteen sixty three until i was detached from her a year later she was built particularly for river service and being a double ender with two rudders of the ferry-boat type she was as difficult in handling as in keeping ship shape during the spring and summer of eighteen sixty four i saw some pretty active and trying service on the james river where we were operating in support of general butler's abortive expedition toward richmond while grant was fighting the wilderness campaign for almost a month the agawam was the flagship of rear admiral s p lee commanding the north atlantic squadron lee was another one of the captains who at the outbreak of the civil war was still in the prime of his powers he was off the cape of good hope in command of a ship bound for china when he heard that sumter had been fired on without waiting on an order from washington he started home on his own responsibility in the conviction that the services of his ship would be needed he was a man of prodigious and conscientious industry commander a c rind in command of the agawam had earned a reputation for fearlessness in the war and fearlessness in controversy before the war while in the pacific squadron years before as i recall he had been suspended by boutwell the commander of his ship afterward when his case was on trial in washington he posted a notice outside the navy department to this effect boutwell is a liar and a scoundrel though the retiring board dropped him from the navy he was able to have himself reinstated and to prove that however eccentric he might be in time of peace he could be of great service in battle the agawam's most important action occupied her off and on for six days in pounding the confederate batteries at four mile creek to aid general butler's attack on the first day we engaged one battery of rifled guns which we could locate and two batteries of mortars and heavy guns which we could not locate and we kept up a continuous fire for four hours until our ammunition was exhausted 
but we had pretty well silenced the enemy before we drew off, and on succeeding days we did not have to endure so heavy a fire. The Agawam was little damaged, though hit a number of times, and our only loss was from an exploding shell on the quarter-deck which killed two men and wounded six. In one sense the fighting was the easiest part of the work. The hard part was the life aboard the stuffy double-ender in the midst of heat and mosquitoes, striving all the while to develop a kind of efficiency suited to the tasks for which such a clumsy craft was adapted. But if the Agawam was not much to look at, Commander Rhind surely fought her as if she were a battleship. She exemplified the spirit which our naval force had developed by the summer of 1864. We were hardened and ready for any kind of service, and the survival of the fittest, through the test of the initiative required and the hardships suffered, had brought to the front a type of man who sought responsibilities instead of waiting for them to find him out. When Rear Admiral David D. Porter succeeded Rear Admiral Lee in command of the North Atlantic Squadron in September 1864, he sent for me to become executive officer of the Minnesota, one of the big steam frigates of the same class as the Wabash, in which I had made my midshipman cruise on the Mediterranean. But I was on board the Minnesota less than one day. Her captain voiced the old complaint about my youth and Porter not being of the mind to assign him an executive whom he did not want, I returned to the Agawam. But Porter had kept me in mind, and later he wrote to Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Fox, asking him to assign me to be executive officer of the Colorado, of the same class as the Wabash. From the outset of the war, Fox had had great confidence in Porter's judgment, and so, in spite of my youth, twenty-seven, I was to have a position which is equivalent in these days to being executive of a first-class battleship. Instead of vegetating on the Agawam on river blockade duty, I was to be in both actions against Fort Fisher, for which Porter was now making his preparations. Porter, though only a lieutenant in sixty-one, was most influential by right of his very active mind and energetic personality. He had been partly responsible for having the then unknown Farragut given command of the Gulf Squadron, which Porter himself could not have taken because of insufficiency of rank. It was thought, however, that Porter, on account of his command of the mortar flotilla, which was a new and spectacular addition to our forces, would receive most of the distinction for the Battle of New Orleans. Farragut, running past the forts in the darkness with his wooden ships, became the hero of the operation, though it might be said that the glory was kept in the family, as Porter and Farragut were foster brothers. It was intended that Farragut should take command at Fort Fisher, but his health, after the wearing campaign in southern waters, which had culminated at Mobile, would not permit. He gladly relinquished the honor in favor of Porter, thus, in a way, reciprocating the favor that Porter had done him three years previously. End of chapter 9